we did uh, when I was in junior high, maybe. We did a trip to New York with the school and got to go to the Tolerance Museum. I was going to say, you guys got to do some fucking cool... Like, that's the big benefit of, like, a bigger school is you guys got to go on, like, fucking cool trips. Well, and we had teachers that, like, wanted to look outside the area, like, wanted to get us out of this state and, like, actually experience there's, shit. I was going to say, there's not a lot going on here. We got to go to the Oregon Trail Museum. <laughs> yeah. It, it, the Museum of Tolerance was... So cool, but it was just like the fucking saddest place on earth. Like it's it exists for a reason, and I get it. Like a zoo, yeah. But well, it, zoos don't even exist for reasons at uh, this point. Some do conservation. I'm not on big zoos side, but I can see where some of it would work. Where you're but, like bringing in like rescue animals or hurt animals and mm-hmm. everything. Okay, Re- rehabilitation, that, that kind of stuff. If a lot can, of the stuff that Steve Irwin used to do. Okay, if you can walk me through a zoo with just a bunch of three legged animals, I can justify these animals being there. It might even be more interesting seeing a bunch of three legged animals. That's true, but then I can be like, none of these animals would survive out in the wild. But then at the same time, I start thinking to myself, I'm like, how many of these motherfuckers actually came in here with three legs, or did they? They just want an exhibit and they could only get a four-legged animal. They're like, which one of these legs have we fucking taken? What if that was a fucked up thing that they told you when you walked into a zoo and they're like, hey, just want you guys to know all these animals suffer from anxiety. <laughs> severe. And that's why none of them are outside of their outside of their enclosures. They all have severe anxiety. Mm-hmm. They're really, really bad around other animals. So we just like to keep them here, you know, one or two per pen. That's just what we do. That's our mission. And that you feel like parading them in front of people or having people stare at them is going to help them how? (laughs) The weird fucking thing about the Tolerance Museum is there's two things that they have there that just like kind of show you the magnitude. Mm -hmm. And the first one is the box of wedding rings that they collected. Like, I, I think this one was at Auschwitz, but... Oh, yeah. The amount of wedding rings that they collected. Mm-hmm. The other thing was, for some reason, the uh, Nazis didn't throw out their shoes. So you walk over this probably like 25-foot-long bridge, and below you is just like a massive pit of Jewish shoes. Yeah, I think it was essentially so... It It's... I'm trying to... They're just like really cheaply made. So I think when they were walking around the camps, they could give them shoes because then if their feet aren't getting as not you know damaged as uh-huh. being barefoot, they're not having to. They can they can work them harder and they're not having to provide a medical assistance. Well, the, the ones that are in the museum aren't like their work shoes. Oh, like they're the, the ones that they were brought in on the yeah. cattle cars, like their actual. So it's when they actually took all of their possessions uh-huh. and everything like that. It's the yeah I remember seeing. I'm trying to think if it was that's like a. An image in Schindler's list is when they're separating all that stuff. They're just piling a huge pile of like coats and shoes and all that shit. There was a, who was it the other day? There was somebody that I heard that was in Schindler's list. That's like a, a pretty main actor now. That was very surprising. Uh, it was either so Ray Fiennes is like the fucking bad guy, and he's the one that played like Voldemort. And, Maybe that was it. Yeah, and then you know Liam Neeson's in it, right? Oh, that that was who it was. Liam Neeson is Schindler. I haven't He's seen Oscar that shit since you probably have, eighth grade. Really, it's just such a bummer. Like, oh I yeah, have a very tough time watching movies like that, that, that and like just sad the, again. The pianist and yeah, yeah. Uh, the pianist. I had enough probably like an hour in, and yeah. that was about all I could take. But, but 
it just, it seems like there's so many atrocities. And that's the kind of shit where, like, when you see statues or, like, that pyramid of helmets. Mm -hmm. I can deal with the pyramid of helmets. That's pretty cool to see. We should probably keep that around. That's not like suggesting, like, we chopped off 85,000 heads and these are the helmets. It's not like that. That's like that's like some Mongolian like Genghis Khan shit. <laughs> They're just out there on the battlefield picking up helmets, and they pick one up. It's got a head, and it's like, oh, oh, oh still yeah. in there, still in there. Pick it up by the spike. <laughs> How many times have I told you? I did. It was fucking still strapped in. The fucking chin strap was still in. It's like Tropic Thunder, where he picks up uh, <laughs> fucking what's the director's name in that? I'm Damien Cockburn. <laughs> la la la. It's like it's just it's just uh corn syrup, guys. Nah. That's oh, it's, it's hot. Yeah. It's warm. It's still warm corn syrup. Great job, Cockburn. Well, I mean I don't really know how that leads into You mentioned shoes. Yeah, I, I did mention shoes, and then I realized that uh Jewish people's shoes probably wasn't the right lead into <laughs> this. So we abandoned ship on that, but um Today is my time to teach you and to teach the people. It's your time to shine. It is your day. Yeah. In this, uh, for as much as I love Ted Noy and as much as I love donuts, which uh, foods played a big role in my life, but Uncle Phil, Phil Knight, the creator of Nike is... It's been a mainstay in my life for longer than pretty much anything. We're, we're recording in a room that's full of Nike The studio. Shoes. If you've ever heard us refer to the studio, our studio is in Adam's shoe room. So literally our desks face an entire wall of nothing but Nike boxes. Hey, hey, Nike boxes, Nike shoes. I have my first pair of Jordans somewhere in here still. I think they're like a size six or a size seven. Oh, seriously? Yeah, there's... There's a Jordan 3 black and cement, which is still one of my all-time favorite shoes. But it's just kind of been a mainstay. And growing up with an older brother, him being eight years older and just being an athletic family, Mm -hmm. I can remember being in um, like gymnasiums all over the city, all over the state, all over just kind of the country when we would be playing AAU or he would be. And I would just watch them play in all these old so shoes. So you were baptized in basketball is what you're trying to say. Yeah. I, I, I forget old. that he's that much older than you. So that's literally like when he starts playing that as a teen, that's like your most impressionable time of seeing like the cool older kids wear stuff. Like you're four, five, yeah. six, seven, eight, like up to that. And you're wanting to emulate and be those guys out on the court. See old Fila Grant Hills and stuff that, they literally, like, the only reason that the companies exist anymore is basically to sell those shoes because mm-hmm. they can still make that kind of stuff. Um, I grew up in a time with Allen Iverson being kind of the, the kiddies' titties, along with Jordan towards the tail end of his career. But you come out with Reebok signing Allen Iverson to a lifetime thought, contract yeah. where he's making Reebok questions, Reebok answers, some of just the coolest shit that you'll ever see that Reebok has ever done besides, like, the pump, the Omni pumps. Excuse me, the uh, the Shaq shoes before Shaq had his own brand mm-hmm. that were called the Kamikazes. Was his 
logo, him hanging and then spreading his legs from the yeah. Yeah, who, he's, he's got the rim in his hand. Yeah, who made those? Hey, he did. It was his own. Oh, company. it was his own brand. And he he went about it in a brilliant way because Shaq was never like out to make a billion dollars with mm-hmm. his clothing line. One of Shaq's big deals, which I think they may even still be made today, but he wanted to make affordable shoes for kids that couldn't go out and pay a hundred bucks for a pair yeah. of shoes. So his shit was sold around here in fucking Kmart's when Kmart's were mm-hmm. a thing. And so if you didn't have those Jordans, you could get those O'Neills. Yeah, the Shaq shoes, the Shaq Attack shoes, and so much of the stuff that you see nowadays. There's guys, Stephon Marbury. I don't know how familiar you were with him. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm aware of who he is. Did he play for the Suns? He played for New York. He played for Minnesota. He might have had a cup of tea with the Suns. Who am I thinking that played for the Suns? Who always wore the glasses? Uh, Amari Stoudemire. That's yeah. who I was confusing him with. But, but yes, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, Stephon Marbury had a career in the NBA, was signed with and one, wore all sorts of different and one shoes along with Vince Carter around that time. Then Marbury goes over into China and becomes like the Michael Jordan of the CBL, the Chinese Basketball mm-hmm. League, and creates a company called Starberry. Starberry followed in the exact same model that um, O'Neill did, where he was putting his shoes out. He said that his most expensive pair of shoes was only going to cost $35. Now, I'm sure that he could still make a reasonable profit off of that because he was over in China making connections with manufacturers. He was selling probably so many yeah. that he made his he made his money in quantity. And just for as many different things, you talk about Adidas. Um, I was going to say, who does who does Adidas have for in the NBA? Uh, right now, they used to have Derrick Rose. Um, their big get is James Harden. He's okay. kind of their main guy. Uh, Trey Young plays for the Hawks. He's also signed up with them. Is who's Steph with? Steph's with Under Armour. Oh, okay, that's yep. But so everybody's got someone. Yeah, but and, like the OG would be. Well, actually, the OG would be, what, Converse? Converse was kind of the first go-around, and that's Pistol Pete Maravich, Chuck Taylor, mm-hmm. is where Converse All-Stars get the name Chuck Taylors. Uh, they just kind of had everybody that was back in the day, and that really was kind of the only option. And what came after Converse, um, Adi Dossler was the owner of Adidas. He created Adidas. Mm-hmm. Um, his some brother, question, Rolf. Some questionable stuff with Adidas yeah, and yeah. Puma. The the uh, the funding to start Adidas and Puma has some uh, some questions behind it. The the German company, the German born company mm-hmm. Adidas, uh, was started by Adi Dossler, and after him and his brother Rolf had a falling out, Rolf Dossler starts Puma. Mm. Uh, Puma back in the day, just going back on it, Broadway Joe Montana. He was a Puma guy. Really? He was in Puma ads when they won the Super Bowl for the Jets. And he had just massive spreads and papers with him pushing Puma stuff. I used to have the Puma, just the casual shoes that had the strip up the side of them. Romas? Yeah. Yeah, they are. You got a pair of Romas in here? There you go. Oh, yep. Right there. <laughs> it's gross, isn't it? Yeah. It's fucking actually, disgusting. I actually, it's weird. Like, I can actually identify times in my life where I was, like, with a specific shoe brand without even really realizing it. Like, I was had those and then, like, some actual Puma, like, running shoes for, like, a two-year stretch. And that's uh, – Puma made a huge impact back in the beginning of track shoes. They were um, – at one point, they kind of – fell into a bad rap with actual track shoes because it used to be outlawed that you couldn't have more than, I think it was five spikes on your okay. track shoes. 
and they used something called a bristle technology, mm-hmm. which was just literally like a a spread out of so kind of like so kind of like how they used to remember those softball shoes, the Bombas, uh-huh. and that's basically all it is. It's just a ton of nubs yeah. on, instead of designated like cleats. And we'll get into how Nike changed the whole game with that too, but just to start out, um, Phil Knight. 1955, he's a freshman track athlete at the University of Oregon, and that's the first time that he ever comes in contact with his coach, Bill Bowerman. Now, Bill Bowerman is such a legendary name in Nike that Nike headquarters in Beaverton is actually on one Bowerman Drive. Okay. So it's situated on a street that was named after Bill Bowerman, which is the Oregon track coach. Now, is he just the track coach, or does he have some type, some role to play within, like, development and founding of Nike? He kind of changed the world. Okay. He he helped Phil Knight move into a a different space that is just, it's kind of, it's tough to describe at this point and I'm not going to get emotional during this, but just understand there are emotions that I have for Nike. Like this is, I I've been to the, um, headquarters multiple times and you can't really go in any buildings, but I've, I've walked around the headquarters. This is kind of like you're in a way like your Mecca. Yeah, it really is. And this would be me like going to like Skywalker ranch. Yeah. Which would also be very cool. This would be one of those things where, like, I could take you to Nike headquarters in Beaverton and you could see it. You'd be like, this is a pretty cool place Mm -hmm. because the campus is just massive. Yeah. And the buildings and everything, the sculptures and the architecture they have are so cool. Whereas you could take me to Skywalker Ranch and we could walk around there and you could be like, this place is awesome. And I'd be like, yeah, it really is. But I wouldn't understand kind of all Mm -hmm. the intricacies of it. But, excuse me, after Phil does four years... Um, at Oregon was never a great track athlete, but he was always out there. Like he was he like a runner or one of like the field events. Yeah, like, he was a runner. As, okay, and that's kind of a. I would imagine that that's kind of where it's. Well, I would imagine like personal firsthand experience would actually kind of like help him out. And I know that different track athletes wear different spikes and all that kind of stuff as far as like different shoes depending on their events. Uh, 55 was, this was back before really the advent of spikes. Okay. And, um, they raced the university of Oregon stadium. It's called Hayward field mm-hmm. is where they have all the track events. And they had something that was, it's I think more common now, but it was a cinder track. Okay. So it was a different compilation than most other places. Okay. So Bowerman, like, is that the red colored stuff? Yeah. Okay. Bowerman was kind of more always on the forefront of trying to figure out a way to make track athletes faster, give them better traction. And this is at a time when a midsole of a shoe was just, it had very few lines in it for grip and traction. It didn't have any sort of, it's called a, um, a heel wedge. Okay. And a heel wedge is what raises the back up just enough to take that pressure off your Achilles. Mm-hmm. So you're dealing with midsoles and shoes that don't exist. And a midsole is the cushioning unit that goes through it mm-hmm. in the middle section. These were just flat shoes. It was like running in ballet like a, shoes. Like basically. a Converse. Like yeah. Converse shoes like that, yeah. like no arch support or anything. Like something you would think would be crucial. And that if you ever wear shoes that don't have arch support long enough, you're like your feet fucking hurt. And these were, I mean, they were just flat. Yeah. It was basically like you had something on to protect your foot, but mm-hmm. you were basically running barefoot. Well, I was going to say for the past 10 years prior to this, the only focus on footwear in the United States was making like army, army boots. boots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But after college, um, Phil went and did a year in the military, which kind of cool. Um, 
just saw a little bit of the world, I think. Then he came back. He went to grad school at Stanford. Um, he was a the fucking number an accountant. Oh, okay. he was an accounting major. He got all that done, and during a time at Stanford, he was in an entrepreneurship class, and he was asked to come up with a kind of like a strategy as to optimize selling things, but selling them at a cheaper price. Okay, and back right around then. Um, cameras were basically all German. Like German cameras were like the kitties' titties. They were like, the top of the food chain. Kind of in the same way that like Swiss watchmakers, they just had that like precision, that Very technology, much, yeah. and everything. We used so, to use this to spy on you. <laughs> <laughs> so he actually transferred that over using some of the stuff that him and Bill used to talk about with shoes. And one thing that they saw was that the Japanese market could actually manufacture. Um, cameras just as good as the Germans at like a quarter of the cost. Mm. And so you could sell something. Are we something. getting into the birth of sweatshops here? Um, Ish. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. I, mean, I don't know how many sweatshops happen in Japan. They mm-hmm. seem to be fairly cultured. But they just knew that Japanese could make a variant of a camera that was really good. So he crossed over the idea of thinking, well, we have running shoes in America. Audi Dossler is running Adidas. Adidas is a German company. Could we do the same thing with German shoes just in Japan? And he said when he got up and did this lecture, he said one of the biggest driving factors in his entire life was giving this speech in front of this entrepreneurial class. And he said that nobody was bored. Nobody was excited. Everybody was just there. Like, he, all he was doing was standing up there and speaking in mm-hmm. silence. Like, they weren't booing him. They weren't yelling at him. It was just, like, complete apathy for this idea that yeah. he had. And he really felt like it was a pretty decent idea. So, after he ends up leaving Stanford, He graduates. Done. He graduates. Yeah, he, okay. he graduates. He, he got his graduate school done. Um, he decides to take a trip around the world to kind of see some different things. And one of the stops was a stop in Japan. He somehow finagled his way into a meeting at a place called Onitsuka Tiger Brand. And Tiger Brand shoes are the modern-day equivalent of Asics. Okay. So these were Asics before Asics. Mm-hmm. If you look at, like, the Onitsuka brand, it's still got the same A pattern on the side. So this brand, this company, formed into Asics? They're, they were Asics <clears throat> of Japan oh, before okay. Asics became American okay. an American company. So... During this meeting, he somehow talked this Tiger brand into making him the West Coast distributor of their shoes, which is a very big deal. Oh, they had they had an East Coast distributor as far as in America? I, they were kind of trying to break into the market, and I think it was more... They he needed, wanted to be on the West Coast as well. Yeah, they were well. that close. Okay. So he was going to... Excuse me. Oh, bring, that that makes sense. I'm thinking Brandon. traveling the other way. Yeah. yeah, if yeah, that would be the first place naturally to move in. So he continues on <clears> for <throat> about a year, and after he gets back from his world tour, it takes them a while to start sending him stuff. As soon as they start sending him stuff, December 1963, um, he starts talking to Bill because he knows that Bill's still the track coach at Oregon, and he wants to get these Tiger Brand shoes on the track athletes at Oregon. Are the Tiger Brand shoes already kind of, uh, and I'm sorry if you said this, are they already, he finds this company that has shoes that are already similar to Adidas? Uh, they're similar, but they have a little bit different look to them. Okay. Like it's not, 
kind of back then. Same principle of what he's after for the shoe, though, like a, maybe a more athletic yeah. or like... Well, and just yeah, he wants an answer on shoe. the market of okay. Adidas. Gotcha. And he also wants to get his foot in the door. He knows that he can get them made cheaper, just like his camera idea. So at can... this point, his intention isn't his own shoe company. No. He's, he's doing something to... Okay, so that's kind of what I'm trying to establish in my head, because I purposely didn't watch. Yeah. And I'm sure that they don't discuss this in depth in air. It's just about the Jordan Not aspect of it. Yep. Um, I didn't want to come into really knowing a whole lot about this. So right now, he's just building a business, doing what he's doing. This isn't part of a strategy to go ahead and then create his own. No. He finds his way into that, it sounds like. Uh, and that was really... When he reached out to Bill and he told him about the Tiger brand shoes that he was now a distributor of, um, he just thought that he was going to start making bigger sales with Bowerman being the head coach of the mm-hmm. Oregon track team, which had just won like a an NCAA tournament with the track team. So they were going to have some shine. He was going to basically sponsor them to start introducing the United States to the Tiger brand. And little does he know that Bill has been working in the past to try to get an in with Adidas. Like he was actually writing Adi Dossler letters mm-hmm. saying, I want to purchase these shoes directly from you. I have some design ideas. I have some things that we can do. And Dossler basically would send him a letter back saying, Hey, thank you for reaching out. Um, here's the number for the distributor in America. So we'll let you spend money on them, but you're not getting to have any type of saying I'm like, you're, Rightness. Yeah, well, that and just, like, you're not, we're not going to cut you a deal or anything like oh, that. Oh, gotcha, You okay. buy them just like everybody else does. So when Phil brings these Tiger shoes to Bill and they're looking them over, Bill has this idea. He's like, holy shit. So you got in with these guys. I've been looking to get into the shoe market with some of these ideas that I mm-hmm. have. Um, yeah, let, let's see if we can make this work. Let's see if we can get Tiger brand to implement some of, some of Bill's ideas. Yeah, okay. so... Um, Bill and Phil meet in Portland, uh, just downtown at a hotel. They start talking it over, start talking about the deal. Bill says, I want to be a part of this with you. I I don't want to just buy these from you. I want to talk to Tiger myself. I want to get my foot in the door. I have these ideas. Let's get his beak wet. Yeah, and I believe that it was a $1,000 investment from Bill after a $1,000 investment kind of up front from Phil. That was it? To get in the door. Well, yeah, I mean, you're talking about the 60s, 1000 bucks is. I guess whatever it translates over into yen. Tokyo, whatever they use in Tokyo or Japan. But they were in. And as Phil starts talking to um, – or as Bill starts talking to Phil, he's like, hey, man – I have these ideas for these shoes. I already came to Adidas. Like I was just saying, they shot me down. I really think that I can build a better shoe. And after that meeting, January 25th, 1964, Blue Ribbon Sports is born. And Blue Ribbon Sports was the precursor to Nike. It was their their joint venture that they were going to be selling these um, Onitsuka Tiger shoes under that banner. Um, they had a few. So kind of- Blue Ribbon Sports at this point is a almost like a sporting goods retailer. Yeah, except for of. these guys are flipping shoes out of trunks. Yeah. Like they're they're just Oh, okay. They're hustling. not like this isn't brick and mortar. This is like hustling. Uh, yeah, they they'll start to kind of gain a little bit of traction as things go along, but one of Bill's major designs that he sent to um Tiger Company was the Nike Cortez. So Bill Bowerman was the early inventor of the Nike Cortez, one of the most 
cinematically celebrated shoes I believe that's out there because what does Forrest Gump run across the country in? Red, white, the red, and blue. The Nike red, Cortezes. white ones, right? Yep. Um, they are just really everywhere. Um, Kendrick Lamar, the rapper, has done special editions of Nike Cortez. Nike Cortez is like just the beginnings of everything that Nike was. And if you look Doesn't at it... Doesn't Forrest wear these shows, shoes then throughout the rest of the yeah, movie, like his whole life? Pretty much. He's always got like a fresh pair of Cortezes on. Yeah, and you see the the red chunk that's in the back? Mm-hmm. That's that um, heel wedge that yeah. I was talking about that takes the pressure off of your Achilles. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a foam midsole that runs through. So you're talking the about the thing. portion that's usually colored that goes in between the two. Yeah, in the okay. heel. Yeah. So that lifts it up enough to take the pressure off your Achilles. So as you're running, you're already springing forward more, mm-hmm. which was relatively unknown back then. They really didn't have any idea. So um, Tiger Brand starts making Cortezes for Blue Ribbon Sports, still under their brand. The IP is still Bills. Um, and they just kind of go like gangbusters for a while. They keep re-upping and signing these three-year contracts with Tiger Brand to keep selling things. Uh, they sell a shoe, I believe it was called On Points, and On Points were like one of the first tennis shoes because okay. Adidas had the rod lavers, mm-hmm. and Blue Ribbon Sports and Tiger Brand's match to that was something called On Points. So they were trying to make inroads beyond just running shoes, but it was really kind of not in the big markets. It was kind of niche stuff like a tennis shoe. Yeah. Well, you also have to look also like worldwide. Like there are sports here that people kind of think about that aren't as big here as they are like in other countries. Like tennis is huge in other countries. Yeah. Like not as big here. Like I understand there's people that play and everything, but like when someone just even says like, what do you think when someone says tennis shoes? It's now just so like the, it's an umbrella that just encompasses this entire scope of shoes hey, it doesn't mean shoes to play tennis in no when it just i means was some younger, type of athletic shoe yeah when i was younger my dad used to just call shoes tennies yeah that was just mm-hmm. uh, their their vernacular back then and actually i just bought a pair of tennis shoes that i'm gonna have to show you because they might be one of my all-time favorite shoes ever are they actual tennis shoes yeah. or oh they are okay yeah. uh roth or Federer's. nice Federer tennis shoes they're Federer michael jordan mashups really pretty fucking two, sweet. two goat did they have twin goats on them <laughs> no, they're I, the design is. Uh, I'll show you during a bathroom break, but okay. they're designed based on the Jordan threes. Mm-hmm. But they're his actual like Federer shoes, mm-hmm. so they're just they're incredible. But 1971 rolls around. Onitsuka kind of starts to get, I would say, jealous because they're seeing that Blue Ribbon Sports is growing. That Bowerman has these other ideas that are kind of going beyond their scope. So they're trying to figure out how to get out of their latest contracts because they they see that the writing on the wall is that Blue Ribbon Sports is going to try to expand, and so they, they're they're basically trying to cut off their ability to produce these shoes and cut out some competition. Uh, that and then more so they're looking for distributors more around the other parts of the country instead of just on the West Coast, and so as that goes along, Phil decides that they got to figure out something new. They they need a backup plan because all they're doing is just middlemanning these tiger shoes into America. Yeah. They need to start being able to build their own models. Well, so it, it kind of sounds like essentially tiger brand was looking just to kind of sell the existing shit that they were making. Phil at the same time, Phil and Bill were like, we still want to develop this into a better product and then sell that at the same time. 
Yeah, and I think that they just, maybe they were being looked at as far as Tiger thought that they were kind of secondary to what Nike was trying, or what Blue Ribbon Sports at the time yeah. was trying to push. So Phil ends up finding this factory down in like the deep south of Mexico. And this was right after um, Mexico had the World Cup. Mm-hmm. So he actually found a factory that was producing soccer boots down there that were just... You need to say cleats. Uh, yeah, cleats. Well... <laughs> From all the people that I listened to, they were there's a lot. Every of, place else calls them boots. A lot of foreigners, but they found this factory, and that was actually like one of the first Nikes that was put out. Was so how did they come up on with the name then? Um, they needed a. They had these designs that were ready to go out of this Mexican factory, mm-hmm. but they needed a name for the shoes. So the actual name of the shoe line that they had was Nike because. Um, this guy, he's like employee number one. Jeff Johnson is to Nike like the linchpin that made everything happen because when Nike actually became Nike, Phil was still a professor teaching accounting at Portland State, mm-hmm. and Bill Bowerman was still the coach, the track coach at. So they needed Oregon. someone to basically run it full time yeah, when they were. They needed somebody to run the day to day stuff. They needed somebody to start up the brick and mortars and really make sure that all the orders were being filled to all these different places. And Jeff Johnson came up with Nike. Nike is the goddess of victory. And he tells the gr- Phil. The Greek goddess of victory, The right? Greek goddess okay. of victory. He tells Phil, Phil's like, eh, not really sold on it. Hope it grows on me. Let's go with it. Um, so that was the first line of shoes. It was a running shoe. Um, so he initially uses Nike as like that series. So it's yes, like Nike's yeah. by Blue Ribbon Sports at this point. Okay. And they knew that they needed something to put on there. Yeah. They knew that there had to be a, a brand logo on there that would change these shoes and separate them from everybody else. So as um, Phil is just walking down the halls of Portland State, he hears these two graphic design students talking. He says, hey, um, I overheard you guys. I really think that... Um, you could be beneficial. We're making flyers. We're taking out full page ads. I need a graphic designer to come in and do this. So he ends up getting, um, Caroline Davidson. Yeah. Carolyn Davidson and Carolyn Davidson is working part-time. She's still a student at Portland state, but she's working part-time for Nike. And Phil comes to her one day and goes, Hey, we need a design. She goes, okay, I'll, I'll mock some stuff up. We'll see what goes on. Um, Carolyn Davidson brings in the first round to Jeff Johnson, to Bill and to Phil. Um, she shows him three or four things. Everybody was a no. He goes, get back out there, see what happens. Her second go around, she draws a swoosh and among with a few other things, brings it back in, shows them. Everybody starts pointing to the swoosh. Phil for the second time of this multi-billion dollar company looks at the swoosh. He goes, not a real big fan of it. Um, hope it grows on I me. I hope it Go grows with on it. me. And that day, Carolyn sold the Nike swoosh logo to Nike for $35. Which no, no stock, no options, no nothing. Well, and this was, she said that she basically equated it out to 17 hours of work that she had done. Mm-hmm. So that was just what they called it. Um, after that, <laughs> it was... Uh, Oh, what was it? It was 1982, I believe. They invited Carolyn back to the Nike campus. 
and had a luncheon for her. Mm-hmm. And Phil brought her on stage. He gave her a solid gold ring with a swoosh engraved on it, and he handed her a packet of Nike stock. To this day, nobody, neither one of them have ever said how much that it was worth. Phil just said that he felt like he made it worth her while, and she said that she's very comfortable now. So don't know how much stock it was. I feel I feel better now. Yeah. I was gonna. I yeah. was hoping that you would circle back around to that. Okay, <laughs> absolutely. Um, shockingly enough, just do it. Actually, is a spinoff of the serial killer Gary Gilmore because when he was getting ready to get this, uh, standing in front of the firing squad, mm-hmm. he asked if he had any final words, and he said, "Let's do it." So they changed Lutz to just because they didn't want just do it because they said that it would feel too pushy. Do it. So, yeah, they added just to the front of it. Just do it turns into a just a major, major deal for him, and it's still used to this day after it was created in, like, the 70s. I fucking remember the commercials, man. Just coming up with a black screen, then in white. Just do it. Or sometimes the orange. Yeah. That Nike orange. Um, just... Absolutely crazy stuff to kind of fall in along that timeline. Um, 1973, Bill Bowerman designed a shoe that was called the Waffle Sneaker. And the Waffle Sneaker just basically revolutionized track. And basically the Waffle Sneaker, which is still made today, and these patterns are still all over Nike shoes. If you look at the bottom of a pair of Air Max 90s, not that. Oh, okay. Um, Air Max 90s. I just oh. showed Adam the bottom of my shoes. What am I wearing <laughs> right now, Adam? Uh, that's just a, like a regular, almost like a herringbone. Oh, I thought these were different. Is a waffle, is it kind of like a van? The bottom of a pair of vans? Uh, no. Uh, That's a a hexagon. It's a honeycomb. Okay. But it's literally just the imprint of a waffle iron. Okay. And how Bill Bowerman came up with this was he was trying to figure out how to get more traction onto a a running surface. Mm -hmm. And Sunday morning comes around. His wife's making breakfast that day. She sets his waffles down in front of him, and he just looks at it, and he goes, I think this is it. And his wife goes, what's it? And he goes, I'm not going to church today. So she heads off to church. Bill grabs the waffle iron that was giving to them, or that was given to them as on their wedding day, mm-hmm. goes outside in the garage, has a bunch of urethane that he's been using to mix up. Molds and stuff. Yeah, to, yeah. to make shoes. He pours the urethane inside of the waffle iron, closes the waffle iron. Well, he didn't put any substrate on either side of it, mm-hmm. so he just literally glues the waffle iron shut. And <laughs> he's just trying to make a mold, and he's like, fuck. Yeah, he never gets he didn't it back know open. Pam. You can't even do that with waffles. You just spray it down with some Pam yeah. or something. So he ends up throwing that one out. Um, sort of a funny story about it just going through beyond how absurd it is that this happened. And he ended up buying more waffle irons and was able to figure out how to make the mold, mm-hmm. then poured the rubber into it. And that's where you see the Nike waffle pattern that's on so many different shoes nowadays. But it was actually like one of the best grips that anybody could get on a track shoe back at the yeah. time that wasn't, that didn't have spikes. Mm-hmm. And that was made 1973. Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking just, out of bounds technological advancement for that time. But one of the Nike historians was trying to go through and figure out if he could find the initial waffle iron mm-hmm. to match the pattern. Yeah. So he called um, Bill's wife cause Bill had passed on at that point and said, Hey, you don't happen to have that waffle iron that Bill had that he initially tried to make the first mold. And she goes, Oh heavens. No, we threw that out years ago. So a few years later, um, 
one of Bill's sons ended up moving onto the property and he was trying to widen out the garage space mm-hmm. and he starts digging down and they live on this just big massive hill that's really far away from the road so they didn't have trash pickup yeah. she said that it was thrown in the trash as he's digging it out to try to pour more concrete he uncovers these rubbish piles and inside the rubbish pile they actually find the original waffle iron plates that Bill Bowerman was using to make these waffle pattern shoes. And just <clears throat> something that should be in the Smithsonian. Yeah. But Nike owns it. They don't have it on display anywhere. It's just... It's in the vault. Yeah, it's in the Nike vault on the campus. Only Phil Knight has access <laughs> to this vault. Uh, their first big sponsorship that they had was this guy named Steve Prefontaine. And he was a runner at Oregon and ended up going to the Olympics. He was just blowing people away at the American trials, putting up records, just all these personal bests, all these records at all these trials. Now, you were saying that, like, American track and field didn't allow spikes at this time still? mm Okay. But that's where Bill was trying to Get create a better could, shoe. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Steve Prefontaine goes to the Munich Games in 72. He only ends up coming in fourth place. Um, he ran the 500 or 5,000 meter. So I don't know how long that is, but it feels like it's pretty fucking long. I'm sure part of it had to do with him essentially not, maybe not being up to the same level as some of the winners, but at the same time, is he still wearing Nikes at the Olympics? Yeah. Okay. So, and they're wearing spikes. So at a certain point during your start and everything like that, and even just the grip you get running, you're going to lose over the course of 5,000 meters. You're going to lose a couple steps. And most of these races are decided by, very few steps. Yeah. Uh, there's a just a, a little funny story with Steve. It gets very dark here in a second. But after he gets uh, fourth place, Bowerman's trying to raise his spirits. And he goes, hey, man, I got good news for you. Um, when we go ahead and head back to Oregon, the University of Oregon wants to name a street after you. Prefontaine looks at him and goes, what are they going to call it, Fourth Street? <laughs> <laughs> he goes, no, it's going to be your name they already have one of those you're you're safe there yeah so after he comes home from munich um he immediately starts training for the next set of games in 76. 76 and during that period of time unfortunately he gets into just an absolute terrible car crash and dies so kind of their first sponsored athlete he he burned bright but he didn't burn long mm-hmm. and they just basically start stacking sponsorships. They start spreading out into different places. Um, we're getting up into 1984 and 1984 is like the biggest make or break year for Nike. And this is right where the, um, movie air kind of starts. Yeah. 1984, 83, they had a very bad year. It was the first year that they had ever lost money as a Mm. company. And there were a few layoffs that happened the company was shrinking and the basketball market was, they were basically like third fiddle at best because you had Adidas that was leading the way. Adidas at that point, um, Magic had moved on from Converse. Larry had moved on from Converse. They're both playing in Adidas at this time. So they're kind of the, the tippy top oh, yeah. of the organization at Adidas. Converse still has plenty of athletes out there that are still playing. Mm-hmm. They're kind of the the... Not co-leaders because their market share was much smaller than Adidas, but they were kind of the second best. Mm-hmm. And then you have Nike kind of coming in as the redheaded stepchild, third place, 
even kind of fighting to keep on to third place. Well, 1983 comes, and we see Michael Jordan kind of transcend college basketball at the University of North Carolina. What did um, he wear at Carolina? He wore Adidas in high school. He wore Converse at North Carolina. Okay. So he already has this love of Adidas, and he wore Converse because that's who UNC was sponsored mm-hmm. by. But he, they said... If that, he wasn't playing a game, if he was practicing or anything like that outside of school, he was wearing Adidas. Yeah, they said that he would practice in Adidas, he would warm up in Adidas, and the only time he would put Converse on is when they were about to walk out of the tunnel that's for a game. That's fucking crazy to even think about, like basketball being a game of just complete total muscle control muscle memory to know exactly how much force to put on a shot uh that's literally like it's like when you see a basketball player transition from wearing like a t-shirt and they've worn a t-shirt the whole time you're like that can't be very good they've gotten so used to that t-shirt that although it looks weird or goofy or it looks like it's getting in their way it would feel too weird to them to shoot a shot without those sleeves on it would throw off their shot the fact that he's switching shoes to something that might not be insanely different, but that is different as far as like the fit and everything and how, you know, they feel. And to still that that to me is just very weird. That's like having a a baseball player use like a bat that's not theirs or a glove that's a different, you know, a different something that's not broken into fit their hand yeah. or anything like that. And um Kind of a a little known secret nowadays in the NBA is when you see somebody that's wearing a pair of just like if you see Steph Curry wearing a pair of his shoes out there, it's not the same shoe that you're going to go get off the rack. He has special inserts. They're molded to his feet. It's a special design just for him. Mm -hmm. Um, They're probably reinforced, too, with all the start stopping. And he's also a larger individual. Yeah. Like Steph Curry still he's six, four. Uh, I think he's six two, but so, and yeah, how much does he weigh? Uh, probably one hundred and eighty pounds. That and that's starting and stopping, and of course they're getting new shoes, however many games or whatever. But like starting and stopping, that's why you actually see basketball players like blow out shoes. Mm-hmm. Like you know how hard it would be to actually blow out even a less reinforced <laughs> fucking pair of Especially shoes, just as you've norm- only worn six times. Yeah, just as a normal fucking dude, like. So yeah, it makes sense that they would definitely have something to where Under Armour was making their special, but it just looked the same around the outside. Well, and that's that's basically modern shoes today. There was like one exception it's to football that. jerseys, the football jersey yeah, that those guys are wearing true. on Sunday. It's not the same one that you're buying from fucking fans or from Pro Image or mm-hmm. whatever. Your shit's not stretching when it gets grabbed. Like, exactly. It's, just it's not as vented. Like, have you felt how heavy and fucking, like, stiff those fucking... No, theirs are probably thinner. Uh-huh. They're easy. They're more breathable. And there's, like, one exception to the rule that I've ever heard, and it just makes no sense. I'm sure you're familiar with Rashid Wallace. I am. Uh, Rashid Wallace played for the Trailblazers. He also won a championship. Rashid Wallace with the would love this podcast. Yeah, she she would be a big fan, and he was actually an assistant coach at UNC. But he wore a pair of shoes that Nike came out with in 1982, and they were kind of their preeminent basketball shoe, and it was called the Nike Air Force One. Now, I don't think you've ever worn an Air Force One. I have not. I'm very familiar with them, along with the Nelly song. Yeah, and we'll get to that when it comes to just the culture that Nike has spawned, but Rashid Wallace, everybody would always say, there's no way that you play in high top air force ones. They'd say, yeah, they go, you have to have an insert or anything like that. He goes, got flat feet. 
Air Force Ones are one of the most uncomfortable shoes that you can wear. It's There's an inner air sole, but they're so flat and so terrible on your feet. And he was like the only guy. Oh, you don't that, see people running in them. Yeah. Yeah. He was the only guy that really ever played in them during his generation and his era. And he said that he would just pull them out of the box. He would relace them. He would strap them up and he'd play in them. Which to me seems like a fucking terrible idea on your feet. Yeah. But he was great. He made it work somehow. So... Back to 83, um, Jordan plays his final year at North Carolina, enters the draft. 1984, Nike knows that they have to make a splash in the yeah, market. They need a whale, basically. Yeah, they're not getting a hold of Olajuwon going number one. They're not getting a hold of Sam Bowie going number two, which, ironically enough, Nike being in Beaverton, they could have had a shot at having MJ on the Blazers, but instead the Blazers took Sam mm-hmm. Bowie. So... It wouldn't have changed the color of the shoes either. Like, Jordan's shoe colors still would have been the exact same because it's still red, black, and white. That's true, and it wasn't the whole thing that the shoes had to be primarily white or we'll almost get to all. that, okay. too. It's okay. another big one that they used. It's For as great of a shoe company is, or as Nike is, Nike's prevalence for marketing is second to none. Yeah. They're, they're one of the greatest marketing minds that has ever come out of a big company. So, 1984... Um, Rob Strasser and Sonny Vaccaro have basically circled Jordan as the guy that they need to get. Mm-hmm. And, well, who are these guys? Um, Rob Strasser was a designer. Sonny Vaccaro was basically like a, he was almost like a Nike agent. Okay. Like he would go and watch college tournaments. This was way before you had. So in the movie, who is Sonny Vaccaro? Uh, Sonny Vaccaro is, he Damon? is Matt Damon. Yeah. Okay. Okay, that's and, what I thought. I saw like a little clip, and he sounds like the guy that's trying to talk to you. And Affleck is Phil Knight. Affleck's Phil Knight. Okay. Rob Strasser is um, horrible bosses. Jason Bateman. Cool. Okay. Um, and just I'm not going to give any spoilers for the movie. The movie's great. The movie's phenomenal. I loved every minute of it. Um, you said a lot of the artistic liberty. Yeah, it's it's just not the real story. I'll tell you but, right now. <laughs> We we're going to have something in common between the the two teaching <laughs> yeah. topics. Okay. Yeah. But I, I'm not going to dog the movie. I loved it. I know I, I'm very aware that there's a difference between me and a general. If audience. you're not you though, you might not know this. If you're just exactly. like, and, and yeah. if, honestly, if you're not teaching me about this stuff before, I see, that's the other reason too. I wanted to know what really happened and occurred. So that way when I'm watching the movie, I'm like, Okay, they embellish that because then if I watch the movie and it seems so sensationalized, then you tell me the real story. I'm like, oh. And he's uh, what I tell you now, what I tell everybody now. If you see the movie Air or if you have seen the movie Air, I definitely suggest to watch it. Listen to us on Apple Podcast and then go on Apple and watch Air. Uh, yeah, I think it's on Apple. It's Amazon. Oh, was it's it Amazon on? Studios? Oh, it was. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, still listen to us on Apple Podcast. Yeah, we need more numbers there, um, but. This is just a different story. Um, so Rob Strasser, who was basically known as like Phil's brother, like they were family. Mm. And unfortunately, Strasser leaves later on and goes to Adidas. And Phil was so hurt by it that when Strasser a passed away, suddenly, yeah, Strasser ends up not a part of this Judas, at all, but Strasser passes away, and Phil didn't even go to his funeral. Ooh. Like that's that's how deep that that's this how hurt bad Phil, of the, the, the blood was to Adidas. But Sonny Vaccaro is hot on MJ. He he really wants him. He needs to get a hold of him. Um, they know that they have a million things working against him because he was an Adidas guy through mm-hmm. and through, and he played in Converse in college. So 
I'm sure Adidas feels like they got him locked up too. Hey, well, Adidas never offered him. Really? Yeah. Adidas said that they would have loved to have been in business with him. They couldn't make the money work, and they had eyes more for um, Kareem. Mm-hmm. But part of that issue was because as good as Jordan was in college, he's not gonna. He's not at this point. He has that you know insane potential, and everyone. It's the buzz around him. Like there's cult for college athletes all the time every year. Yeah. But like, as a shoe company you might be looking more toward guys that were already established and popular in the league. Uh, well, and that's what it is. And Jordan ends up signing the richest shoe contract of anybody at that time, like the richest sponsorship contract. And like you say, he's unproven out of North Carolina. He could be great. He could be a bust. They definitely say that he, he's going to be a trans, yeah, a, a, a major talent. But Kareem's already established. Kareem is cool. Kareem is in L.A. at this point. Like, he's Showtime Lakers. You're going to try to throw all your money behind getting Kareem. That fucking hook shot uh, with those goddamn goggles. Yeah, eventually they did. Um, he got the Adidas forums, which were are fucking beautiful and one of the best shoes that Adidas had ever made. But Vaccaro starts talking to um, Jordan's parents. And this is sort of like a no-no. Like, you're supposed to go through the agents, but they know that Jordan's mother is like the decision maker. Like yeah. She's going to be the one to call the shots. Mama Jordan. Yeah. She's so, got the final say. Uh, Vaccaro is in contact with um, James, the father, and his mom's name is slipping my mind. It'll come here in a second, I'm sure. But he talks with them. He explains to them that they want to make everything on the Jordan line specifically for Jordan, and they want to turn him into basically the face of the company and, and we want him so, to be our centerpiece. Yeah, in doing so, too, just making him the face of the NBA. Yeah. Because at this point, there's already established, like, they've done things, different certain ads. One of the fucking funniest things that they did was it was Moses Malone was mm-hmm. a Nike athlete. And for one of the posters that they made of Moses Malone, they threw him in a robe and they gave him a cane like Moses. Yeah. And it, it was like a big Nike ad campaign mm-hmm. that was in papers and all that shit. Very funny to see. But... It was kind of Jordan's mom that said, Mike, we got to go there. Like, we have to go to Beaverton. He goes, I have no interest. I don't want to do this. I don't want to go there at all. You're go. Listen, you're going to fucking Beaverton. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to take a look at these places, and you're going to thank these nice men for offering you this. Yeah, and he he went with no intention of signing. And he basically was telling his agent the whole time, he goes, just get me in front of Adidas. He goes, I'll, I'll convince them to give me a contract. Just get me in front of Adidas. And so they go out to Beaverton. Um, the movie is really great at this point, just explaining how it all happens. But basically, when they bring Jordan into the conference room, their idea is to make Vaccaro and Strasser be like the initial meeting point for Jordan. Mm-hmm. And they can talk about everything. They can go over everything. And then Phil Knight's supposed to be the closer. Phil Knight's getting a separate meeting later on at night to kind of seal the deal and finish it up. So during Strasser and Vaccaro's meeting, um, the shoe designer brings in the Jordan 1. And he sets it down in front of Jordan. Jordan takes a look at it. He goes, you guys, the shoes are too high. They're too far off the ground. I need to be closer to the ground so when I cut, I feel like I have enough strength to be able to move without rolling an ankle. Or did he try this or just go off? Like, did he put the shoe on, walk around a little bit, or was this off to just... Uh, just looking at it. Really? And, okay. I mean, you can usually tell a shoe that's higher... Do you think he's doing this a little bit because he's already looking for excuses not to do business with Nike? Yeah, okay. I, I truly full-on believe this. 
that that was the thought process was he was doing whatever he could to get out of there and have a reason to get out of there to get to Adidas. And the shoe designer in Vaccaro go, that's no problem. We'll tailor these to what you want. We'll give you your specifications. And Jordan kind of stops and he goes, so you're just going to customize a pair of shoes for me? And they go, yeah, we're going to take your ideas into the consideration of making these shoes because you're the athlete that has to wear them. That just blew Jordan away. That was like, Jordan was... So I'm not going to have to try and find a shoe that you guys already have that you want me to wear and play my style around that. I get to go ahead and customize a shoe that's going to fit me specifically. Yeah, and they make... And and you're going to call it the Jordan 1s. And that was kind of another selling point is um, the airline hadn't existed. Like, as far as Nike was, Air Jordan was specifically made as the tagline for the Jordan products. Mm -hmm. Um, the shoe that they showed him was primarily black and red. And this is just something for a little bit later on. Did they? Oh, cause he, they knew he'd been drafted to the bulls at this point. Yeah. Okay. So they knew the colors. This was already after the draft and everything like that. So he looks at him and he goes, uh, these don't look like they're going to really fit what's going on in the NBA as far as shoes and rules and stuff. And he goes, don't worry about it. We got that. We'll take care of, you know, making these able to be mm-hmm. used in the NBA. Um, the comparison to that would be like, if you're thinking about like Wimbledon. Yeah, how they have Wimbledon, to wear white. It's got to be nothing but white. But then you'll find some people that'll like try to sneak in like different shades of white or like subtle like colors. I think, I don't know if the Williams sisters ever tried that, but I want to say yes. there was some like light pink or something like that or like uh, fringe or something that was... But it's 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 testing the boundaries. Well, and Serena, I believe, also wore pink undershorts underneath her all white dress. Yeah, something and that like that. Got her in trouble too. There's been a Wimbledon will have to be an issue itself because Wimbledon's fucking sweet. But the other thing that was a real big deal for Jordan was he wanted this red Mercedes, and I want to say it's like an SL two seventy something like that. But he wanted that to be a part of the deal. And so after they had kind of given their pitch to Jordan, they decided to stick around. They want to take the meeting with Phil to kind of close the deal. Excuse me. Phil walks in, meets everybody, shakes hands. He asks where the deal is, where they're at, where they're leaning. At this point, they don't know if they're getting Jordan because Mm. he does still have eyes for Adidas. They didn't know at this point that Adidas hadn't offered him a deal yet. And like I said before, they said that that was just kind of based on the money and there were a few other things that were going on that kind of play into Adidas. The, wasn't he wasn't their number one priority? Like he wasn't Nike. It sounds I, like he wasn't. But um, Dossler had already passed the um, company along to his son, mm-hmm. and he ended up dying. So there was a little bit of an issue because part of his shares were given to his children and broken up among them. Mm-hmm. And then, the, so there was some some leadership questions, yeah. or something going on within the company that drew their focus away from solely focusing on Jordan. Sort of, yeah. Okay. It, it wasn't super prevalent because the mom still owned the majority of the shares, mm-hmm. but she also wasn't the businessman. Yeah, she probably wasn't in was. there familiar with like the day to day and what's yeah, going on with exactly. the company. So, um, Phil comes into the room, talks to the Jordans. Talks to Rob, talks to Sonny about what's going on, and he just kind of says, what do we need to make this deal happen? And as he's doing that, Sonny Vaccaro pulls out two die-cast models of the red Mercedes SL270 mm-hmm. that Jordan wanted, and he holds them up, and Phil goes into, like, full acting mode, and he's like, oh, 
we got to do this too. I got to get you these cars too. He wanted two. Uh, well, that was kind of the joke was okay. that he wanted one. So they wanted to give him two, but the tongue in cheek was, it was actually the two die cast models mm-hmm. that he was holding up or the ones that they were going to give him. Yeah. And as they're going along, Jordan just finally says, I, I didn't expect that you guys were going to want to customize a shoe for me. Um, I think we got a deal. And, it wasn't the first year, but it was the second year after Jordan was signed. The Jordan line, I, I want to say they sold like three or four million units of the shoes, of the Jordan 1s, and they made so much money that that next year um, Phil had a tow truck bring the red Mercedes SL270 to Jordan's house. So he made good on that promise, delivering him that car after the So deal. they ended up changing the shoe to be predominantly white with the red on it, right? So uh, this is where it gets weird, but just to to tie that up, and this will lead right into where we need to be with just the ads and the marketing. Okay. But um, Jordan signs a five-year, $2.5 million deal with Nike. So that becomes the largest. Largest sponsorship deal at the time for anybody, and I think all of major sports. Okay. I don't know about soccer, but they always seem to go higher. But as far as America goes, this was the creme de la creme. Um, So the Jordan 1 comes out, and... The interesting thing about it was everybody thinks that Jordan played his first year in the Jordan 1 because you would think that that was. Mm-hmm. But he had already been drafted. They were heading into a new season. They hadn't signed him until later on in 1984 before the season. So the first season, he actually played in something that was called the Nike Airship. And it's very, very close to a Jordan 1. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's damn near like it, the, almost like a prototype. Yeah. They were able to get that to uh, him while still working on the Jordans. And it had the same coloration pattern on it. Um, the NBA took one look at it and they said that there was too much red because the team or the shoe has to be um, primarily white or black. And then it's accent colors can't be more than I think it's like 50% of the actual shoe. And it has to look like everybody else is on the team. And the Jordan 1s that he was wearing were primarily, or they were basically all black, but they had a ton of red on them. And the NBA said, no deal. And I've heard Phil, or not Phil Knight, but David Stern, the old NBA commissioner that was commissioner for Jordan, had explained that they banned the shoes, but the deal would have been, had he worn them, it would have been like a thousand bucks. And then the next time he wore them, it would have been twenty five hundred. The next time mm-hmm. he wore them, it would have been five thousand. And then um, he would have just been suspended. Yeah. So Nike takes this opportunity to put out a commercial at the start of them dropping the Jordan ones, and the commercial basically explains that the NBA banned Jordan shoes. Mm-hmm. And so it was a pair of shoes and a colorway that he wasn't ever going to get to wear in the NBA because the NBA said no. And so they became known as the band ones. Okay. And an actual pair of band ones that's like still unworn, not the originals because the originals go for probably $10,000 still. But the first remake that they did, they put a, uh, like a, like a glossed X on the back of them Mm -hmm. for band. Yeah. And you find pairs of those that came out early two thousands that are going for like 900 to a thousand bucks. Like it's, it was that much of a selling point Mm -hmm. going along with that ad that they did where it's the NBA says that these aren't good enough for them. Yeah. But you be the first one to get your hands on the band. Mm -hmm. These, these are forbidden shoes. 
Yeah. Too right. hot for TV. <laughs> and I, it was just stuff like that that they always capitalized on them. And there's a million different ads that we can go through. Um, Bo knows. The Air Max Trainer SC. Bo knows baseball. Yeah. Bo knows football. Bo knows. Bo Jackson doing, as a biathlete, just doing fucking everything is pitching these Air Trainer SCs. Two sport SCs. athlete. Huh? Two sport athlete. That's a different meaning of it now, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean, Could have been a biathlete, biathlete. Yeah, I, no judgment. <laughs> He'd be a big bear, man. He'd be Dude, a- I, yeah, Bo, Bo Nose was huge when I was a kid. I remember seeing him in the baby blue KC Royals. Um, and then also, like, was was the Bo Nose the big, was one of the big Bo Nose ass shoulder pads on with the bat hanging bat over, over his shoulders? shoulders and his yep. arms over the top of the bat. So, yeah, I mean, just uh, iconic stuff. And I don't know as far as, like, being out of, like, people that didn't follow sports. I'm sure they had to have seen that in media just, probably everywhere. that wasn't just sports man that was in magazines that was anywhere and everywhere yeah. and the thing is is people like bo jackson and michael jordan they transcend <laughs> the sports that they're in just because they're so good at it people don't listen to country music but people know who fucking like garth brooks is where the body's garth <laughs> we want to know <laughs> um 1988 just do it um just that... do it was their kind of like major flagship introduction of the catchphrase mm-hmm. or the the tagline, whatever it is, the motto. They don't even need the name of the company or it's such a motto. Yeah. And so well known as a slogan. They don't even need the company logo, the swoosh, or Nike. You see, just do it. They had ads that showed nothing as far as like the company logo and it just said just do it. And they're like, that's a Nike ad. Well, and this was like Nike's second major like national across the world or whatever. commercial that they would do. Mm-hmm. And it was a guy in San Francisco that would run the same route every day. And he was kind of just like an average Joe, but it became like stuff of legend because this guy would run the same path every single day. Forrest Gumpish. Yeah, very Gumpish, Mm -hmm. yes. And um, once he got to the end of his route, it showed him going through San Francisco, just all this beauty. They pan in onto him. They see the shoes. I believe he was wearing the waffles at that time as he was running. And he says, just do it. And it was a major campaign. Their first major, major campaign um, was the Beatles song Revolution. This is a weird little bit of history. Okay. But um, they put out an ad as Nike was the revolution. They were going to revolutionize sports. They are going to revolutionize sportswear, shoes, all that kind of stuff. And they had actually licensed the song from the Beatles. Beatles didn't know about that and brought a lawsuit against Nike trying to sue them for using their music in an ad that they didn't know had already been passed off on. Hmm. So there was actually litigation between the Beatles and Phil Knight and Nike Incorporated. That took, that had to, people that didn't hear about Nike <laughs> at that point though, knew about the Beatles. And at that point they're like, who the fuck are the Beatles suing? Who, yeah. the, fuck are, who the fuck are these Nike guys? So you, you just, it's incredible. How well that works. Um, 1988, uh, Mars Blackman and Jordan commercials that they did. Uh, Mars Blackman was a character in a movie that Spike Lee had made called She's Gotta Have It. Okay. And he just, he was a very funny character. He was just this little dude that wore um, the hat that had the bill turned up in front. Are we talking, is this like Cat Williams, Kevin Hart, Chris Tucker-ish type character? This kind of, yeah. And they went... Back and forth through these ads. I think they ran from like 88 to 91. They were that successful. 
And it was just the, the first ad that they had done was for the Jordan 4s. Mm-hmm. So we're already four years into this line. And he still gets shoe patterns and designs today where there will be like the um, Mars Blackman, excuse me, Jordan 8s. That's the colorway of the Mars Blackman 4s that they made. So this stuff still kind of transcends today as a way where you can sell the same pair of shoes 15 different times in 15 different colorways. But if you have a Mars Blackman colorway, it's going to carry more cachet and people Mm. are going to want to go after that still. Um, Much just like another just brilliant style of branding, but Jordan and Space Jam. Yeah. Jordan wears hair seven or Bugs wears hair sevens. Jordan wears the Space Jam 11s. Space Jam 11. Were those designed? Did Nike design those specifically for the movie? Yeah. Really? It was a colorway that I think he only wore for the All-Star game because they were black and blue. And oh, to match it, the Toon Squad yeah. uniform with the blue trim, yeah. And just another, this is a major motion picture. It Was it Disney? I don't know. No, it was. No, it wasn't. Warner Brothers? It had to be Warner Brothers because yeah. it's Looney Tunes. But you have the Looney Tunes, which probably pound for pound were the most popular cartoon back then. Did Bill Murray wear Jordans when he came on to play? I believe Bill Murray or Bill Murray was wearing Bordeaux Sevens, but I haven't seen it in a really long time. But uh, just another ad to get Nike out there on the face of the front pages on the movie screens to have kids see those things. That's the and, biggest thing, right there, man. Kids seeing that, already idolizing Michael Jordan. I want those shoes. <laughs> yeah, they had uh, one of my personal favorites. Charles Barkley has always been like a personal favorite basketball player just because he's always been either like a dickhead or just super charismatic. I think Charles Barkley funny. is probably more popular in the later stages of his life than he ever was as actually a basketball you player. Think? Yeah. Yeah, because here's the thing. People could like Charles Barkley as a basketball player, but any team that didn't have Charles Barkley or Charles Barkley did something to one of their favorite players, automatically probably wouldn't have a lot of love for him. Now when he doesn't have to really fucking, like, (laughs) give a fuck about stuff and just says whatever's on his mind, he's funny now, but also, like, he can be serious, and he's pretty progressive, too. Yeah. For stuff. So that's kind of what I'm... I think he's... I think there are a lot of people now that understand that Charles Barkley, looking at him, you'd be like, that's a big dude, but I don't know if that dude ever played basketball. And part of his deal was, as a player, he did shit like when he was on the um, Dream Team for mm-hmm. the Olympics. He spit on somebody that was talking shit in the crowd. Yeah. Like, he was he's a firebrand from yeah. pillar to post. From the beginning when he was so fat in Philadelphia mm-hmm. that his teammates told him that he was too out of shape to play basketball. Like, that's where the round mound of rebound comes from, yeah. is he was so fat and Moses Malone, somebody that we just talked about earlier, still played for the Sixers, took him under his wing, taught him how to be less fat, get in shape, get in playing shape. And he just, he transcended everything as far as like the athlete that you wanted to put on there. He had Charles Barkley put up or shut up. It was a Super Nintendo game. So how does that translate into Nike though? He was signed in, um, he wore multiple Nikes and he wore, they were called Nike Forces. And I believe it was a a Court Force One or a Max Force One, but they had these big absurd tongues on them. They had a strap that went over the top. They had the air sole in the back, and he was signed on for something called "I Am Not a Role Model." And, and that I was am his, not a, like that was his marketing. Yeah, that that was his tagline mm-hmm. to everything. 
I wish that we could play it because he sounds so good saying it. But the I Am Not a Role Model campaign was him coming on screen and saying, just because I dunk a basketball doesn't mean I should raise your kids. And that completely sparked like a just a culture of people talking about like, hey, we need to realize that these athletes that are on the screen can be people are people, man. Yeah. That's well, the, that's the common theme throughout our entire podcast is that people are people and they're just, and I don't believe that, you know, athletes, I think that part of the territory that comes with that job and making that amount of money is that you do need to understand that you're much more visual and that people are going to aspire to be like you because you do have that money. You have that level of fame, you have that level of talent. So there is somewhat of an obligation to try to, essentially put forth a good, not be a role model, but essentially just try to put a good, what am I trying to say here? Like not be a role model, but don't be an asshole. Yeah. Like people, people do look at you for, don't teach people how to act like an asshole. Just don't teach them anything at all. If you're going to do anything, just be neutral about the whole thing. Well, and a big part of the ad was to explain to parents, like, I can't raise your children. No. And I completely get that. What I'm saying is you also need to like, understand that these athletes are people that are under a lot of stress within their professions and that they're going to do shit. They're going to blow off steam, especially back then for him to get looked at that was maybe a 2%. He got caught doing what, you know, any bad shit that he was doing. <laughs> yeah. That was a different time. So people He's also need to realize. Boy. Yeah. So He's people a- to also need to realize that like, what would you do with that amount of money? Like you'd get into some shit. So don't like have the expectation that these people aren't going to do the same. Just teach your kids like, Hey, you can aspire to be a great athlete or try to get to this level, but don't be that person. I and essentially don't park your kids in front of the TV yeah. and have me raise them. Like you have to step in there. Um, another big one that they did 1992 was their instant karma ad, um, which was a Hirachi ad. Nike Hirachis have been running shoes, their basketball shoes back in the day. They've done multiple different iterations of them. Um, one of the most famous was the, I believe they were the 08 Hirachis, and it was um, Kobe's primary shoe mm-hmm. in between on his line. He would have special Lakers Hirachis that were made for him to wear. I believe they were called the 2K8s because for some reason back at that period of time, we liked 2K4, 2K5. Yeah, look at any ba- fucking basketball game that came out. Yeah. NBA I, 2K. I didn't even think about that, but yeah. But... Um, well, it's also 2000. Mm-hmm. The cool part about the Hirachi ad was this time it was John Lennon singing his song Karma in the background of the song. So after all the Beatles litigation and mm-hmm. everything that happened between them. You can't beat them. Join them, dude. <laughs> yeah. John Lennon was still like, you guys want some stuff now? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll help you out. Like, just I'll take the pay what? this time. Are we, you guys are still upset about that whole thing? <laughs> Come on, man. Really uh, talented. One that I don't know if you remember. Um it was when they shut down a street in San Francisco and Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras actually played, played a match. each other, right? Yep. Yeah. They played a match guerrilla style marketing before it was guerrilla mm-hmm. style marketing where they took it to the streets. They filmed everything that happened. There were guys there with bullhorns that were calling the match and they literally just shut down a street. I think it was in the, like the banking district or something like that. And they brought out a net in the middle of the road. They blocked off the road and they just played a game. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, Sampras wore a pair called the Air Max 2 Spas. 
not the greatest looking shoe, but somehow like... Looked. So this was all a Nike planned event? Yes. Okay. Yep. Yeah, this was just Nike sending marketing out there. They used clips of it for commercials. Um, the two spas look very Pete Sampras for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why. But Agassi wore Air Challenge LPs, or LPWs, and his shoes ended up was being... Was this uh, still mullet wig Agassi, or was this... Embracing yeah, his yeah this this was still when he pretended to have hair. Oh God! So this is peak. Yeah, and, and after uh, once he shook the wig, he wore. Um, they were just called Tech Challengers, mm-hmm. and that's what his shoe line was. But uh, marketing on a level that you had never seen before. They actually shut down one of the a street in one of the busiest cities in the country, just so they could get this material and get it out to the masses. Like that's gonna for tennis shoes at that point in mm-hmm. time. Like that's gonna be a really you're doing big something statement. no one else is doing. Yeah. And having um, Agassi and Sampras both signed to Nike, like you have the creme de la creme mm-hmm. of tennis at that time. American tennis. Out there making it. Well, yeah. But, yeah. but still, still, worldwide think, tennis at that point, yes, they were both very prominent. Yeah. Um, 1995, Lil Penny with Chris Rock and Tyra Banks. And it was Anthony Hardaway was coming out with the, uh, I believe the first one was for the Air Max Penny 1, and the next ones were for the foam posits, but it was like a little Muppet that okay. was voiced by Chris Rock. Mm-hmm. And then Tyra, Brank, or Tyra Banks was also like the love interest in these commercials that Lil Penny was That's obsessed right. with. That's right. Okay, I remember that. Yeah, and it's just little stuff like that where you may not be a sports fan, but you've seen these things play it, out it on trans- It reaches outside of sports just because from its entertainment value is what it is. Uh, yeah, just like you were talking about earlier, 1982, Air Force One's come out. In the same way that people that don't watch football probably know who Tom Brady is. Yeah, very yeah. much so, either yeah. through Giselle, through Uggs, or any of the other weird That's what I'm saying, yeah. Through people that kiss their kids inappropriately. That's, yes. On the lips, still. Like people that a- don't hang it up when they should, and they lose their <laughs> fucking super smoking <laughs> world's most famous supermodel wife, because they're fucking dumb. Like you were talking about earlier. Tom, Tom, if you're listening to this, come on and explain yourself. We'll talk to you. Yeah, we're not going to pay you, but I want to hear your story. But uh, 1982, you have the Air Force Ones that have still transitioned into, I don't remember when Nelly and the St. Lunatics, they they were in their prime. when when was this? Um, When when did the song come out? For Nelly and the St. Lunatics, Air Force Ones. Ooh. I want to say it was like 04, 06. Uh, I want to say earlier than that. I want to say 0203. Uh, right. So you were right. It was still when I was in high school. <laughs> uh, during the time of Jordan and Adidas being a viable option, Run DMC puts out My Adidas. You have the first kind of like rap. And I mean, they were rocking Adidas back when. Early on, they had yeah. the Adidas tracksuits and everything like that. Shelto right? Superstars Adidas tracksuits, like mm-hmm. that was the fashion of the '80s. Was Adidas setting those trends? And when you have Run DMC walking up on stage to do a concert, singing "My Adidas," pulling their shoes off and yelling out to the crowd, "Everybody that's got a pair of Adidas, put your hand or put your shoe in the air," and it was literally a sea of people holding mm-hmm. up Adidas. That was kind of the market that they had at that point. So 2002 rolls around, Nelly and the St. Lunatics, as hot as they ever were, put out Air Force Ones, and it was a blitzkrieg that Nike like let them 
use well, the you term could do so many variations on the forces, right? Yeah. And that was like when they were shoveling out as many colorways of Air Force mm-hmm. Ones as possible because they knew that that song was just going to be hot as shit. Oh, yeah. Well, he wore like 18 different pairs of Air Force Ones just in the video. Yeah. You see, um, I believe it's ludicrous when I move, you move. And mm-hmm. he's got the big all white Air Force One that he's doing he's the stomps with. Yeah. Like they just transcend into music so well. And hip hop has accepted um, just Nike. I think beyond everything else, you again, you'll have Rev Run, you'll have Run DMC that does Adidas. Um, I forgot the other rapper. It wasn't Killer Mike, but um, he did Adidas all day. I dream about sex Mm -hmm. all day. I dream about all day. Yeah, I don't remember who that is. About sex. Yeah, like just big time. Bismarcky, a very odd guy in life when he was alive. Yeah. You got what I need. He basically like cornered the market on something called a Nike Air Safari, and they're fucking wild shoes. But when you see them, like they're fitting. Mm-hmm. So you see all these not only athletes wearing stuff, but you see rappers wearing them. Nowadays, pretty much anywhere you go and see a famous person, there's a better than likely chance if they're not wearing like a a high end, you know, private label shoe, it's going to be a, a Nike of some sort. Yeah. Um, 2010. Or wait, wait, wait. You're you're skipping past some stuff. Like, what's going on in like '97? Oh, okay. Um, so in '97, the Jordan 12s came out and they released. Jordan puts out a commercial, and this is after the first retirement. Um, he comes back with the Jordan 12s, and he starts talking in this commercial. Did about- he ever get a Jordan cleat when he started playing baseball? Because they make Jordan cleats now. You own yes, a pair of Jordan cleats. Tons. And they also make Jordan golf shoes. Too many. But um, he wore Jordan 10s were the shoes that were slated to release on the basketball court mm-hmm. that year when he retired and went and played for the White Sox. He actually had Jordan 10 cleats that were adapted for him that he wore to play baseball when he's in. When he for the Sox. But it was never like a mass release. Okay. So, excuse me. That was the first time that a Jordan line had ever been released, or a Jordan, a yearly drop had ever been released and he wasn't playing. Jordan 10s are still some of the most popular Jordans. I was going to say, those seem like if that was going to be the case, then they probably wouldn't have continued to make them throughout the season. It was probably more of just kind of a limited release, it sounds like. And I think they only did two colors. They did the white, black, and steel. I think they did a white, red, and silver. And they might have done a black and gray, so there might have been three colorways of them. But certainly not to the acclaim that they had done everything mm-hmm. else before. Um, but in the the Jordan Failure commercial, it's him talking about all the shots that he missed, all the games that they didn't win. And he spun it around and he said, that's why I've succeeded in life is because of all those shots that I missed and all those games mm-hmm. that I didn't win. Kind of like a real introspective, like, I've come this far in my career. Um, we just, a, a mini, a mini, mini, mini last dance. A last dance commercial. Yeah, but, yeah. I, very much so. Then we move to um, kind of something that's always been a part of Nike's ethos. And Nike has these, they're kind of core tenants, which I find very interesting. They're called Nike's principles. And the first principle is our businesses change. Second principle, we're on offense all the time. Third, uh, perfect results count, not a perfect process. Break the rules, fight the law. Four, this is as much of or this is as much about battle as it is about business. So there, I mean, he's 
Phil has made this very clear that he has these beliefs. Um, five, assume nothing, make sure people keep their promises, push yourselves, push others, stretch the possible. Number six, live off the land. That one kind of gets thrown in there, I think, because he's a little bit of a, a Buddhist hippie. Um, seven, your job isn't done till the job is done, which is a, a very cool saying. Uh, eight, dangers, bureaucracy, personal ambition, energy takers versus energy givers, knowing your weakness. And That's a lot of fucking principles, man. Yeah, don't get too many things on your platter. And all of it fits so much. Um, it nine, doesn't fit on a shirt. It's well, not like Nike Core 10. It's like, just do it. It's like... No, this was... They had a big wall, and it actually shows it in the movie Air that had these, like, in the bullpen okay. in, their, in their actual business area. Um, number nine, it won't be pretty. And number 10, if we do things right, we'll make money damn near automatic. And um, 1995, they had a, it was an ad campaign basically geared towards women. And it was called If You Let Me Play. Um, What year was that? 1995. Okay. So the bulk of the message was, this is a a young girl saying this, I will be 60% less likely to get breast cancer. Uh, We'll suffer less depression. We'll be more likely to leave a man who beats me. Will likely be less or less likely to get pregnant. Wait, wait. Uh, we'll be less likely to leave a man that beats me. No, we'll be more likely to leave a man who beats me. Less likely to get pregnant. Okay, you swallow those for a second. <laughs> like the ad wasn't for me. More okay? likely to get pregnant and less likely to be like. Don't wear these fucking <laughs> shoes. I will learn what it means to be strong if you let me play, play sports. If you let me play sports, and. It was like them sort of reaching out. I'm not going to go through what it means for girls to play sports. I would believe a lot of this because I think it goes hand in hand. You know, the breast cancer thing, not something that dudes deal with. Uh, I believe that having sports or something like that in your life will lead to less depression. Oh, yeah, Um, 100%, dude. I would go fucking nuts if I didn't work out or wasn't at all active or anything. Same thing. uh, We'll be more likely to leave a man who beats me. Like, you have more self-confidence. You feel more self-worth being out there playing. Um, Less likely to get pregnant, I would assume, just because you're literally doing something else besides fucking. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which, I guess that counts. Um, And you'll learn what it means to be strong because that's... Like a core tenant in athletics is learning that inner strength, learning how to just basically... And that's not gender specific. No. That's just, but you learn teamwork, you learn about your own abilities, you learn to push past your barriers. But you're reaching a new market in women that have kind of been left behind in the ad space for athletics. Yeah, definitely. Which is just a a huge move to bring in... It's 50% of the market, man. Like (laughs) A marginalized community. Um Fast forward back to something fun. Uh, 1999, I believe anybody that saw this would attribute, or anybody that sees anybody do this would attribute this to this commercial. Uh, the Tiger Woods ball juggle. I was going to say, I was waiting to, the whole thing with like when you really think about it, Nike and Tiger, I mean, he was their new Michael Jordan. Yeah, uh, he, he, he really was. was. Yep, he and, was so fucking an popular. An obscure sport. Yep. And brought golf into the mainstream and introduced and got a whole entire... Like, I would wonder how many people in our generation would golf if it wasn't for Tiger Woods. Probably less. Yeah. And the simple fact that not only were they like, hey, Tiger, you know, we're going to design all of this apparel for you and all this kind of shit. Nike started making fucking golf clubs. 
Which were decent golf clubs. They were decent. I mean, they don't exist anymore just because essentially they got so many fucking irons in the fire that to keep up with companies whose sole goal it is is design the best golf clubs, tailor-made titleist places, things like that. It just doesn't make a lot of sense because that market is already so flooded with other of these top-tier manufacturers. But well, I still, I still like finding a Nike fucking golf ball. Uh, and they still, I mean, they, they produce everything else Nike Golf besides balls and gloves, or balls and clubs, which mm-hmm. makes total sense, because if you're going to sell one um, one set of irons for $500 one time to somebody for 10 years, but if you sell them 25 gloves, a hat, a polo... The shirts are 45 to 50 bucks each. Yeah. You're, you're going to make it up just by two years and selling people golf apparel. Uh, your your swoosh is still, and even the Jumpman now is still on you know, everything that they make for golf. So you, mm-hmm. your advertising is still out there. You still have sponsored athletes. They've moved real heavy into golf shoes, kind of like you were talking about. They've turned Air Max 90s into golf shoes. Um, Jordan has... I believe six different retro models that are golf cleats. Mm-hmm. Um, they have the tour elites, which are just incredible looking. Who are golf some shoes. of the Nike sponsored uh, golfers right now? Uh, Harold. Well, they've taken a little bit of a hit in America. Rory is still staying strong with them. He's a Nike guy. Um, Tiger. Tiger. Yes. Harold Varner plays for the Saudis now. He was a big Jordan guy. He was mm. like the first Jordan guy on tour. Uh, Justin Thomas wears um, Air Max 90s. Uh, the big one that hurt was Brooks. Brooks oh, okay. was a, a major player for Nike, and him going over to live has sort of... Kind of put a little bit of... But still, what I'm kind of getting at here is it's not just Tiger. I mean, out of essentially all these like top-tier worldwide golfers, they have a piece in everything. Yeah. Uh, was it Jeter? Was Jeter their sponsored... He, he was, was Jordan their, athlete. He was the golden boy for baseball for them, right? Yeah. And he had his own line as well. Uh, who was Griffey with? Griffey was Nike. Okay. Griffey was Griffey was Nike. Um, uh, talking about Jeter, he was almost more of like the first Jordan athlete in baseball. That's right. Like, I, rem- oh, the, I remember the jump man on his wristbands and everything along with his number like on the other one. That's right. Yeah. And then as he retired, they did the respect campaign with the S and the two mm-hmm. being swapped. I as a Red Sox fan, it makes me fucking sick to talk about Jeter, but he's like the only Yankee that I ever respected. Yeah, mostly it's because he had the Jumpman on him that made me feel a little bit something. That and his hit list is fucking it's fucking legendary. Yeah, yeah, Un- unquestioned. <laughs> uh, something I know a lot less about, but uh, 2010 Cristiano Ronaldo, right? The future I think was more of an international commercial. It was geared towards Nike soccer, which Nike soccer I think his probably still lower in the market share under Puma and it's Adidas. Because it, it's because they have such an international... Two foreign companies. They're, they're, foreign they're so far entrenched internationally. Um, plus, man, when you get into like what they consider their uniforms, kits, mm-hmm. um, what they call soccer uniforms and their stuff, their kits, they are... They're more interested. I'm sure there might be some that are Nike. I know there's some US based teams like in the MLS yeah. that are Nike sponsored, but international, you have like legit soccer specific companies that are sponsoring these, these well, um, teams. Or, well, and sometimes it's not even like as far as like you can't even tell who is on who made the uniform because there's so many fucking sponsors and ads on there. fucking everywhere on them. Yeah. yeah. But bagging a guy like Cristiano Ronaldo to wear your cleats or to wear Dude, your. Dude, 2010. Your boots, 
that was uh, that was before Messi, I think, or that was that was when Cristiano Ronaldo was essentially the best soccer player and the most widely recognized soccer player in the world. And so, I mean, to but the, but at this point, man, Nike is so big and so established that it's like we can really have anyone we want. Oh, well, and that was the brilliance of it was they knew that they couldn't really get a foothold with like sponsorships and kits for actual clubs. But if you can get a guy that's at the peak of that sport, mm-hmm. you're you're making waves in that sport yeah. without having a swoosh on a, mm-hmm. a jersey. Um, well, and now if you really look at it, too, this is really one of the big shots internationally. Everyone yeah. else is kind of like, a you know... Um, is essentially domestic to the United States. Like they're now branching out for like international sponsors. And I'm sure they had those before. And it's not like Tiger's not taking the swoosh across the pond with him. You know, every time he goes to golf, it's not like these tennis players aren't, you know, going to every country where people Mm -hmm. are seeing it, but to have essentially an international superstar where people from all these other countries, not only because they love him in Portugal where he's from, but he's also playing over in Europe in the premier league. So you're getting all of these eyes. Hey, he's a foreign superstar. He's not American born American Mm -hmm. bred. And they do that a lot. Now, um, Luca and Giannis are arguably top five players, both right now. Roger Federer, Roger Federer, Raphael Nadal. Yeah, they they aim big and they they steal these international stars. And as far as basketball goes, I mean, if you're an import coming into America, Nike's probably going to be your first thought because mm-hmm. you've seen these worldwide ads. Uh, but the one that we forgot to mention earlier, the one that you pointed out, um, maybe my favorite commercial of all time: the 2001 Freestyle Nike commercial with Jason Williams and all the other players where they're bouncing the basketballs. And you hear it to the beat that dun, 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 dun. And it's all just basketballs being bounced back and forth. I'm going to have to look this one up. I don't know this one. It's, there's no music or anything. It's like just that. Sorry, it's, dad. <laughs> it's, it's an iconic commercial. Like I'm sure I would recognize it as soon as I, like, I'm going through all the commercials, like um, the Jordan commercials, like off the rafters over the, but that was like, that wasn't a Nike commercial. That was something, was that McDonald's or some shit? Uh, I believe that was mcdonald's maybe but um like the jordan commercials where he jumps from the free throw line yeah and it's the iconic pose mm-hmm. it's the silhouette it's it's everything that nike ran with that commercial and if you haven't looked it up or you haven't heard of it i'm sure once you see it you'll remember it just google 2001 nike freestyle commercial and it'll it's fucking fantastic um kind of to go along with those core tenants and sort of along with the let me play thing Phil Knight's never been somebody to shy away from progress and to... What some people would deem controversial topics. Yeah. Divisive stuff. Yeah. he they Granted, it's one thing where when you have so fucking much money and influence, you can pretty much say whatever you want. Mm -hmm. But 2018, after the Kaepernick drama of the kneeling for the anthem, all that shit happened. Nike threw the dream crazy sponsorship on Kaepernick without him being an NFL player. They put he a, wasn't a previous Nike athlete. He was before, okay. but they hadn't run a campaign for him. Okay. They got behind him. Um, uh, again, this is another, like you say, just he brought himself right into controversy. And you can say what you want about Kaepernick. Everybody has their own opinion on him. Opinions are like assholes. Um, some of them stink. But Kaepernick was something that in the really belief in society, they're like, oh, 
this is gonna kill Nike. Nike is absolutely gonna here. lose it's, it's so much money. It's the thing where money. you see the fucking videos of like people like burning a Nike shirt, and it's like you, they got yeah. your money. You didn't, you didn't like get that for free, and now you're like sticking it to them. Like you paid for that, and now you're fucking burning it. So like, eh, who's winning here? Yeah, do, do you protest other companies by pulling the money you would have spent out of your wallet at that store and then burning it? Mm-hmm. Like, no, I was don't. gonna spend this here, but watch me light it on fire. Yeah. Fuck you. <laughs> but. It didn't. Nike's money grew. The the sponsorship ad was a crazy hit. And I would like to think that maybe some people that had negative feelings about Kaepernick, I mean, I'm I'm not all the way sold on him. I think that he was a good dude that sort of got Got caught up in some some crazy ideas and didn't really understand. Like, they wanted, again, just another weird side tangent for him. But he was wearing a, I believe it was like a Castro meeting Malcolm X shirt or something like that. Mm -hmm. And Castro, again, for all intents and purposes in this country, has been taught as an evil man. Yeah. Um, He didn't do the worst things for Cuba. He actually, I I think that in America, we kind of look at Castro through the lens of the Cold War and anger. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think Cuba sort of, uh, they're... They live, some people live in poverty. Like their human rights record is Mm -hmm. not good. But he also brought in a few different things that we don't do in this country as far as socialist things, where he would adopt schools for everybody. There was like education that was taught, there was free healthcare and all that stuff that is like a bugaboo in America. So he was looked at poorly. But those are the things that Kaepernick would talk about defending while not bringing up the human rights record. So he, he, he got his messaging a little bit wrong, I yeah. think. But all in all, I, I I mean, I would never kneel for the anthem, but I don't think the Kaepernick is that bad of a dude. But neither did Nike. Nike bet their money on his ad campaign bringing in the dollars, well, and it really did. Well, here's the thing, man. Um, from a worldwide perspective, okay, so let's say even in our country... 50% of people, like like almost fucking everything. 50% of people, 50% of people. It's a divisive topic, okay? 50% are like, you know, it's it's fine. I don't understand what Kaepernick is going through. I've never been persecuted like that. I've never been essentially discriminated against because of my skin color. So I can't stay... hated. Yeah, so I can't, I can't speak to what that is. But for anybody that does feel like that, I can understand why they would identify, want to go ahead and stand behind him. And that I'm not going to get in the way or go against somebody that I don't understand that their plight or their circumstance and everything like that. If anything, if they feel that strongly about it, then chances are there's something to it and I'll be supportive of it. So you say 50% of people in the United States like Nike for this 50 don't worldwide though, when everyone is looking inward, there's none of that xenophobia toward loyalty to the United States. So they're looking at this and they're like, this guy's trying to essentially peacefully process protest against discrimination and against these things. People worldwide are going to look at that and be like, I like what this guy stands for. So while it may not have been the greatest thing for Nike domestically, worldwide, that's just going to go and get them attention for essentially being a supporter of human rights. Yeah, I I didn't even think about that till you were putting it together. But the flag and the national anthem in our country means something vastly different than I think it does around the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, whether that's for good or bad can be argued all day long, but I, I think you're 100% right. Internationally, it raised the eye of Nike to more people. But it, yeah, just, uh, I mean, their their ads that they put out 
sports fan or not, I'm sure that you've seen them. I'm sure, again, there's the cross-promotion and branding of a Jordan being a, a McDonald's sponsor. He's mm-hmm. always still wearing his Jordan-branded apparel. He's still wearing yeah. Nike stuff in these ads. Anybody else? Because he's making money off that. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's like, when you buy McDonald's, also buy McDonald's on the way to go buy some of this shit. He's cashing two paychecks yes. every single time yeah. he does anything like that. We've got um, your wardrobe for you, Mr. Jordan. No need. Don't worry what I got on. <laughs> yeah, I got it. Don't worry. Yeah. You guys can save money on my wardrobe mm-hmm. guy. Unless you guys are buying some new Jordan shit yeah. that I approve of. <laughs> I'll put tell your, you what I need. Away. I need all this Jordan stuff. Um, just today, uh, these numbers just fucking blow me away. Nike's market cap is $179 billion. For a, a, essentially what would be, uh, when you boil it down, a shoe wear and apparel company. Yeah, I, and they, they branched out into apparel. They do incredible stuff. One of my favorite wardrobe staples is Nike yoga pants. They're mm-hmm. fucking fantastic. Enough that I bought Nike yoga shorts. Not a big yogi fan, but they're so comfortable that I had to have some shorts for the summertime, too. What's what's Is it just the material, or is there a weird fit to the yoga shorts? Um, it's, are they like pirate? Do they have ties at the bottom? So you no, can like no, no, no. Parachute those, pants this? Those are my fancy. Those are my, my uh, harem pants. Okay. But uh, yeah, they're they're just very soft material that's super duper stretchy. They breathe really mm, well. Just rub your dick right on the outside of the pants. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You, You're you not allowed it. to wear these yoga pants to the strip club. Probably not. Probably no. not. No. Yeah. Um, they employ seventy nine thousand employees. Almost eighty thousand employees. Yeah, and, and granted that is worldwide, but that's a massive company. So to go on a hundred and seventy nine billion market cap. They're making $46.7 billion in revenue they made in 2022. That's more than fucking GDPs of some countries. Yeah. Like, that's this is just one company. So I would guess several countries. It <laughs> would shock you, probably, the amount of countries that that's more than. I apologize if this comes off as like a, an hour and a half long dick sucking of Nike and Phil Knight. I, I, I will full on hand to Allah raise it and say, you're right. Um, Nike's gone through their controversy too. Um, late nineties, early two thousands, they were looked at in a poor light as some of the factories in Vietnam and China were being looked at as far as subpar for standards. Yeah. Sweatshops. And I'm not trying to justify it because I don't think it's it's a secret. It's not a secret. It's not, but it's also one of those things. I'm not dismissing it. We're like all, all companies pretty much do it to this point. Yes. And this is something being a shoe guy. Don't like the term sneakerhead. Shoe guy works just fine. I was thinking about this the other day, not even shitting you. So, like, there's a lot of stuff now being made in America. I was just thinking about the whole thing. People are, like, so against China. And I, I'm not, like, super pro-China or anything like that. But what I'm saying is that, like, it seems <laughs> You're so... You're doing the cash- same dance I had to do with Castro a I know. couple seconds What ago. I'm saying, though, is it's so easy for people to just, like, come out and say, like, we should stop doing business with China. And, like, that's just a very, like, ignorant thing to say because... It, at the same time, I could probably go to that person's house and three quarters of the stuff was made in China or everything and at and be like, no, like, what what would you do? Well, I'd get made in America stuff. I'm like, then you're not going to buy made in America stuff because it's more expensive than the Chinese stuff because we have to pay people more. Why do you think stuff is so cheap from China? It's because they're not paying their people very much. Yeah. Like, you want to complain about, like, low paying jobs here and everything. Well, you're paying to pay those people that you think should earn a livable wage. So if you're going to buy 
American or made in the USA, you do have to fucking pay more. So have it one or the other. Hey. Don't own a bunch of Chinese <laughs> shit and say we shouldn't do business with them. Yeah, dude. And this, this sticks in my craw as a shoe guy more than fucking anything that anybody can say is when somebody finds out that I have a shoe collection, they go, oh, so they're, they're just Nikes, so like it's Chinese. I'm like, yep, because I know where this conversation goes every time. They go, I'm more of a New Balance person just because they make their shoes in America. I'm here to dispel this bullshit that New Balance has put out as a campaign. Less than a third of the products that New Balance makes are made in America. And most of those are all between two and $400 for their shoes because the only thing that they assemble in America, because all the products are brought from overseas to make mm-hmm. these shoes, um, are like super high-end running shoes. Yeah. And if you're going to say made in America and they're going to be $400, that's what you face when you want to bring all these jobs mm-hmm. back to America. Because like you just said, a living wage in America that we believe everybody should be paid is going to make the price of that shoe go up immensely. Yeah. And I'm not saying that shoes aren't made for the cheap in China because they are, and they could probably be made still sort of cost-effectively here, but you're going to be paying more for something mm-hmm. that people on average, don't enjoy paying a lot of money for. Which, to me, is fucking crazy that New Balance puts that dirty media out there saying that they make their shit in America. Listen, every every company is going to have some dirty shit locked away in a chest, and that just, this this is what it is with any company that makes a product and wants to make it cheap and wants to, you know, maximize their profits. They're going to look for essentially the place where it's going to cost the cheapest to make it and do everything and that's what they're going to do so it it's unfortunate it just it's not surprising just for everybody out there if you're wearing a pair of new balances and they're around 100 bucks or less you're wearing chinese shoes um so they made 128 they make 128 million in profits a day Uh, not like that's how much shit they sell a day okay So their total sales... So their merchandise sales are $128 million. Okay. $128 million per day around the world is what they do. And of that chunk, um, Jordan gets paid out in 2022. He made $256 million. So out of the $46.7 billion in revenue, $256 million of that went to Jordan. Yeah. And that's just in one year. And that's just strictly from his line. So that's how much money he's making off yeah. of his line alone. He's like, I'm going to build another golf Nike course. Stuff. Yeah. I'm just going to build another one. Yeah. Uh, have you seen the mock-ups for the one that he's designing? I saw his actual. I've seen oh, the yeah, stuff for his, his actual first course one. where he has fucking drones fly it's stuff incredible. out to you. Yes. Yeah. You order something at, like on a tablet in your cart, and then a fucking drone <laughs> flies it out to you. And you can fucking order chicken wings or yeah, fucking dude. beer, whatever. Yeah. Just incredible. Um, 250 Nike stores. Um, in the U.S., there's over a thousand worldwide, and this last number is just for me. It's amazing thinking about where we are today because back then there were small, little, there were Keds, there were tiny shoe companies mm-hmm. that had just a, a minor slice, but it was like Adidas. Later on, it was Reebok that came into the game, and then there was Converse, and then there was Nike. Like that was there were the big four basically mm-hmm. of what they could have. And their market share was so minuscule. Nowadays, you have Under Armour. Um, you have all the companies that are coming over from China. You have Leaning. Um, Peak, I believe, is another one. 
Uh, Reebok is still somehow around, even though they were finally purchased by Adidas eventually. Mm -hmm. I think that they were let free. Nike bought Converse, so that's just another eating of the market. Adidas is still a big player. Um, but there are still other kind of niche shoes. K-Swiss, I think, is still around. But you have Asics for the running brands. You have just a million Sauconies, just everything. New Balance yeah. is out there. You have everything. And of that sports and like athletic wear and shoe market, Nike takes up 38.2% of the market share. It's almost 40%. Yeah, so with that much more competition, they're still holding on to that much of the market yeah. share. And it only grows. Like they, they only spend so much... Their um, tech budget for all the shit that they make mm-hmm. is like more than double the next competition and money that they spend in research and development. Like they actually have a Nike lab now where they're just testing new shit. Oh, so this is a lot of Nike to to suck in. Um, I to me, it's just an incredible story. Not only of Phil Knight, who just started out as a track athlete with well, a dream. The thing that's crazy about it, like, and I'm just kind of like the market share that they got, the numbers, the profit, all that kind of stuff. They really only started as Nike in like the seventies, yep, like early seventies. So in 50 years, they've not, not just like got their foot in the door in the shoe market and everything like that, but they literally own it's, it's their market and everyone else is just kind of, Keep their keep Swimming their piece the and fight for fight for scraps. That's fucking nuts, man. Yeah, I I don't know where it's all gonna go in the future. You're but a, you're a healthy contributor to that market share. <laughs> yeah, my that, friend. That I am. I haven't paid for shipping from anything that I've ordered off of Nike in over a decade for sure. Oh, they give you free shipping. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When you're when you're a stupid spender, they mm-hmm. tend to. Do they have a level for what you are like platinum, gold? Like, what would they consider you? Um, are you uh, like a like a what do they put swooshes like a general on your arm or something like that? Like different ranks, <laughs> a three swoosh general. Uh, sweet. Yeah. Uh, the closest I've ever come in this kind of plays into just the wrap up of why I feel the way that I do about Nike. But, um, there's a, when you walk into a Nike store now, they'll ask if you're a, a Nike member mm-hmm. or whatever. And, I had the Nike, it shows like member sense on the thing. Mm-hmm. And every time I pull it out to have them scan the QR code on my phone, they see the member. And I've audibly heard people go, oh, you've been doing this for a while, huh? So what? what's your members? Um, it is, I haven't even looked. Are we talking like, I mean, like. Since the inception of the member program? Pretty much. Oh, really? Since, since the inception of... Then be able to track that information. Yeah, so Nike Pass, uh, February 2013, so 10 years. And that's, like I say, just from the Nike app and everything like that. But Nike, for me growing up, was like it was a destination spot. Like on vacation, when we would go to basketball tournaments, they had these things and they're just called like Nike stores now. But they were called Nike Towns back in the day. And it was... They oh, were, I remember the one in Seattle. All the major cities of just everything around as far as... The Nike Town in Seattle is nuts. It's like three stories. And the thing that's crazy about it is it's not like jam-packed with stuff. It's not like some like Nike warehouse like you would think. It's like all the like newest shit and then some of like the crazy retro stuff that they have. But it's it's fucking nuts. It's almost more of like 
it's almost cooler from like an architectural standpoint about how they have everything except like the fucking shoe ele- the goddamn shoe elevator. <laughs> yep. Yeah, they they have the um their basically their stock, their back room is below and they have clear shoots where whatever level you're on, they will press the button in for the shoe, the radio down. Um, the people that are working in the basement will then put the this shoes. This is like goddamn Hogwarts for you, man. <laughs> this is like all of the goddamn house elves in the kitchen that are making the food that send it up to the Great Hall. I just imagine a bunch of little fucking just elves down there around on scooters being like, he needs a size 13. <laughs> it's just such an ode to what Nike is. It's opulence for Nike because there's um, the one in Portland has all of the Jordan retro line, all white and big display cases up on the second level that you can actually walk around and like see the transitions, see what they were based on, see that the um, Jordan 14s were inspired by the Lamborghini. Like, do you do you feel usually? And I'll try to make this a little quick. Usually, fancy shoes like really nice dress shoes used to be like the status symbol, like how nice your shoes were, how shiny they were, like how were the, what were they made of? Is that gator skin? Now it's, I think Nike, I, I will say confidently that Nike is the, essentially the juncture in which all of a sudden that status changed to your fucking like your tennis shoes and the style of shoes and how clean your fucking shoes were. And everything and to now turn this into instead of like look at a fucking award show man like where they a lot of people would be dressing up in like you know tuxedos they're pairing their fucking tuxedos and everything like with forces and with jordans and everything oh, yeah. yeah jordan one to this day i still believe is one of the classiest looking um just like regular shoes yeah and uh, for me it's just so much about what i like as opposed to like th- there's people and this is where my issue with sneakerhead comes in is those are tend to be people that will buy for like what the market dictates and what it says. But for me, it's just always been about the shit that I like. Have I resold stuff? Yes. Have I resold stuff for stupid amounts of money? Yes. Have I bought stuff for stupid amounts of money resale? Fuck yeah. A ton. But it's only shit that I like. I'm not buying something to look at it immediately and think, okay, I can flip that. Like, I, I buy it so I can sit around and look at it. I'll be in the studio stone some nights just looking through shoes mm-hmm. and remembering. Do you ever just look at the shoes and be like, at least it's not cocaine? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if it was cocaine, it'd sure be a shitload richer. I know that. <laughs> but I, it's it's the memories that are tied to it. Just quickly, back in the day... um, when you would have a release day, you would, the malls would open at like five o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. You would make your way in. There would be a line outside the Foot Locker, Champs, Foot Action, Finish Line, what have you, whatever store is in there, whoever was getting the drop in the release. And you would go stand in line in front of these stores, and there would be other people that would be coming for the release too. You would talk. You would be in a different city, for mm-hmm. Christ's sake, so that you wouldn't even know these people. But you had this same goal and this love in common. You would figure out, you know, there's two size runs back there. So two size runs, eight through 14, eight through 15. It's like these little versions of like Comic-Cons for people who are into like... Yeah. And here's the thing too. You're a shoe nerd. There's nerds, but nerd, nerd is just uh, essentially what you're obsessed with. People that are obsessed with sports and all that kind of shit, they're just sports nerds. Stats and all that kind of stuff, you're keeping track of numbers. It's, you have like, there's this weird community. It's, 
that's built around these loves and everything where it's just like, that's the most prominent thing and you can feel comfortable and you can feel like you belong. And like, these are your people. Like it doesn't matter what it is, but that's like to have it be about like shoes. That's, that's something crazy. If you really think about it, it's, it's shoes. It's something that everybody wears, but then you have this level of people that are just like, no man, it's not just fucking shoes. It's shoes, man. Yeah. And it's, I mean, communities that, just have found each other through this general love of what they have. I can remember being fucking 17 years old, like too young to buy a hotel in a different city. But if we weren't getting a release and Mm -hmm. I knew that there was a a city that was close to getting that release, we would get done working at Foot Locker, close the store sometimes at 10. Three of us would pile into a car. We would drive to that next city that we know got the release because we would have spent most of that day calling around to the other stores to see who got mm-hmm. them. And then we would stand in line. We'd get our shoes. Everybody would be in awe. We'd load up the car. We'd drive four hours back home. and the, Worth it every yeah, time. It was always worth it. There was never a, a, just a bad time and a bad experience. And nowadays it's much different. Nowadays it's... Kids the are online. West online and yeah, I, and the releases. I don't even know how they work anymore because I just don't want to deal with them because people are assholes now. People are fighting in line. If somebody buys the shoe size that you want in front of them, somebody else will buy the next shoe size down to resell it, despite the person behind them. Like it's just, it's not the same community that it used to be. Yeah. And maybe that's just a weird old man take about shoes, but it's it's different from when I was growing <laughs> up. <laughs> I think it's like that for everything, man. All right. I'm so glad you got to do this one. Yeah, I, I hope that I did it justice. I mean, this is... Oh, I think you did. Uh, it's a, a fantastic company and a fantastic story. All right. You got anything to close out with? Or what... You know what? Here's the deal. What is your favorite pair of Nikes? Uh, favorite pair of Nikes is probably still the Air Max 90, just because it's so classic. It was made in 1990. It was top of the line, everything that they had going for them but it's just such a beautiful silhouette with the curves on it with the airbag in the back the two swooshes inside and out i mean it's just and it's so versatile you can wear it with anything there's a, a good deal of these boxes in here have 90s in them i'll uh, close it on this if anyone from nike is listening we are definitely open to some type of sponsorship we would love to sing your praises even more than this Please definitely listen to the socials and hit us up on this. Yeah, this is your first free ad. If you like this, we got more in the chamber. There you go. All right, guys. Thanks for joining us again later. Peace. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us for another episode. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe and like button. Follow us. If you didn't like what you heard, still hit that anyway, because we'll probably cover something in the future that you do like. Um, Please follow us on our social media. Adam, hit him with it. Uh, Our Instagram is historically high pod, historically high pod. And we are on Twitter at historically high. That's historically H I. All right. And if you guys want to send in any feedback, suggestions, hit us up on those two, or you can even do it on Gmail. It's historically high podcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again. Peace.